Hello, everyone. We're going to get started with the reading of God's Word. We're going to read two passages today. The first from Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, and the second is from Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5 through 11. First, Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. In our second passage, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A phrase I hear over and over in this season across all different platforms and mediums, uh, from advertisement to politicians to school officials, uh, this phrase I hear over and over, even I'm guilty of using uh, a lot these past six months, is uh, in these uncertain times. In these uncertain times. Uh, you've probably heard it said, in these uncertain times, we're in this together. In these uncertain times, we're here for us. You can trust us. In these uncertain times, uh, please buy our food. Uh, we hear it over and over again. And then this heightened sense of uncertainty has led to an increased anxiety in all of us, uh, in each of us personally, but our culture as a whole as well. And if you find yourself losing patience more, uh, worrying about life more, panicking more about what tomorrow holds, uh, I would just say give yourself a little bit of a break. Uh, studies have shown over and over again that when anxiety increases in our system, uh, our rational thinking brain sort of takes a back seat to our more primitive uh, fight or flee uh, brain thinking. And the reality is our impulses start driving us. A great example I've heard is about those student, student driver vehicles. You know, you have a steering wheel on the driver's side, but you also have a steering wheel on the passenger side. And imagine a car accident on the interstate with this young, inexperienced driver, and the instructor would normally take over at that point. Uh, but the student has his, his or her hands on the wheel, and they still think they're driving, but that couldn't be further from the truth. This increased anxiety has exposed in us kind of our personal fragility through it all. But here's the warning for us, is that if and when life uh, returns to whatever normal looks like in this next season, I would say don't let the facade of normalcy uh, placate your anxiety because current situations will always shift and change. And as soon as you begin to relax, when you think normal has returned, you turn the channel on and the next thing you know, uh, murder hornets are coming or the bubonic plague is coming back again uh, to a city near you that around every turn it's going to feel like 
another moment for anxiety to increase. But rather, I would challenge us is look to the future promise of Scripture, that Scripture has a foothold in the certainty of time, that all things will eventually be made right, not by fate, not by chance, not even by time itself, but by Jesus Christ, who is redeeming, restoring, and bringing renewal to all things through and in him. And Revelation 7, 9 gives us a visual of what that life looks like when all things start coming back together the way it was supposed to be. And more specifically, what the church is supposed to look like. This future church realized in that moment when all things are put back. Our family, uh, our family of six now, it's hard to even say six in our family because we have four children. Uh, we don't watch actually a lot of movies. We don't uh, watch movies because they don't really enjoy them. But when we do find one that we really like, we watch them over and over and over and over again. Uh, on road trips, we'll usually have two copies. Uh, one of the first movies our kids really got obsessed with was the Peanuts movie. And we would have two, one just in case uh, the other one didn't work. You know, we went through the season when a Frozen was the movie of choice. And then Frozen 2, uh, when it was er released earlier this year. Uh, but recently, what's really caught our attention, and not a movie, uh, but the play Hamilton. Man, it is an amazing story. And our children are hooked. They love watching it. During the day, they watch it. And at night, they play the soundtrack before they go to bed. And it's funny seeing your eight, seven, and four-year wandering through the house uh, singing, I'm not going to throw away my shot. It's just a little funny to see them. And for those uh, unfamiliar with the play, it's Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda's adaptation, a musical of one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, and the story of his life. And he describes it saying, it's America then, told by America now. Really creative. America then, told by America now, with this diverse cast and this uh, modern music. And for the church today, when we think about us, when we look at Revelation 7, 9, it should inspire us, it should call us, and it should really drive us. See, in that picture of Revelation 7, 9, we get the church finally realized in its uh, full form in the future, in all its beauty, in all its diversity. And the beautiful part is that we can actually tap into that future church today. See, that church of the future can be lived out in the church of the now, See, that church, when all things are made right, God says we can have some of that. We don't have to wait. We can have that now in the church, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And what we're seeing described is the diversity of humanity uh, surrounding the throne of God, worshiping him. And we have to cling to it. We have to hope in it and we have to fight for it because it's so much easier to let our anxieties take over and let it revert back to what's comfortable, what's known, and what's palatable. The Apostle Paul understood this to be true. This newly emerging church in the first century uh, truly lived in uncertain times, uncertainly marked their lives at every turn. They felt it uh, politically, they felt it socially, and they felt it with their very livelihood and life. And these early brothers and sisters uh, felt the comfortable pull toward returning back to division and disunity. And I say the comfortable pull because 
as God was gathering his people from all walks of life into this new creative endeavor called the church, some people felt more comfortable to worship with the people they already knew. They felt more comfortable worshiping people that shared the same history and background and preferences. But Paul fights against this in his letter to the church because he's been gripped by that vision of the future church. He even rebukes uh, another apostle, Apostle Peter, one who walked with Jesus because he would only sit with the Jewish Christians and not the Gentile Christians. And he reminds them to hold on to that future promise that we find in Revelation where he says, there is no Gentile or Jew, but only those who are in Christ Jesus. He reminds us that the church stays united only through Jesus above and beyond our backgrounds, histories, ethnicities, and even preferences. And with this promise before us today in 2020, how do we brothers and sisters let not the anxiety of temptation bring us to division and disunity, but bring us to be the church, the church of the future lived out in the church now. From our text in Colossians, I think Paul walks us in three ways. A painful death is that first way that he shows us. Second is the unexpected renewal that we find. And third and finally is the new declaration of the church, a new declaration of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. First, a painful death. As you guys can clearly see, I am not a runner. Uh, The Lord did not give me a runner's body, and I have not treated it like a runner's body. But I have had many friends and many people try to convince me otherwise. And when I do get out there to appease them, when we start running, they found out real quickly and they can see that I'm more of a plotter than a runner. And they'll suggest in friendly terms, maybe maybe you should just try the elliptical, which really doesn't help my self-esteem in that moment. Uh, But... When I do get out there, I feel pretty good that first day, even though I'm plodding along. It's that second and third day, you start feeling it, right? You start feeling it. Uh, And what they tell me, some people have told me, is that what it is is your old muscles are actually dying so new muscle can be made, that your old muscles are actually dying so that new muscle can be formed. I was pretty happy with the old one, uh, the old ones that I had, but what do I know? There is always a painful death when a new life begins. Ask any mother, uh, and then that will be true. Three times Paul writes to the Colossians, uh, leaving behind what was. He says this, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Rid yourself of all such things. Take off your old self with its practices. Three times He gives us language of leave behind the past. He repeats over and over again the necessity to leave behind the old self. And in the Greek, it's better translated, uh, put off the old man. Put off the old man. John Calvin describes the old man as this. The old man is whatever we bring from our mother's womb and whatever we are by nature. It is called the old man because we are first born from Adam the first man in our story. See, not just coming to Jesus for the first time, but living in and through him is death to everything you bring to your table prior to meeting him. The way you think, your behaviors, your ideologies, your history, your prejudices, your very selves 
must be brought to death. And if you don't think that encounter with Jesus is a painful process, I would challenge you that maybe you haven't really met the real Jesus, but rather, rather an idol Jesus. See, a Jesus that is just a form of what you want him to be. If Jesus uh, just always comes around to your way of thinking, if Jesus always supports what you support, if Jesus never pushes back against your choices, your habits, or your preferences, you may be worshiping an idol, Jesus. And you may still be under that old man, that old self, that old person where you are the author of your own life. 17th century Puritan theologian and pastor Thomas Goodwin says, there are but two men that are seen standing before God, Adam and Jesus, Jesus Christ. And these two men have all other men hanging at their girdles. It's an interesting picture. There's Adam and there's Jesus and everyone else is behind them. While the old man leads to death, the new man, the real Jesus, leads to eternal life. The price is everything. It'll cost everything you hold dear, not just in salvation, but in living with Christ. Daily choosing to lay down your own freedoms, your own rights, and even your own perspectives to die daily to the old man and to live under the lordship of Jesus. In this daily dying, there's also a renewing that happens in you. You may not even realize it. As you take on that call to die to yourself, that there's actually a renewal happening inside of you, an unexpected renewal. Verse 10 says this, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Have you ever experienced buyer's remorse? Uh, the, that purchase you've been looking for, anticipating, and when you finally get it, it really doesn't quite measure up to what you were hoping for. We're actually in the process this weekend of moving to a new home. Like I mentioned, we are a family of six now. We need a little more space, but our, our first ever home, we, first home we ever bought uh, was the home that we are currently in, and it was an exciting time. We were pretty uh, pumped as we put an offer in, it was accepted, and we finally moved in. And the house was built in 1962, and I don't think anything was ever updated in the house. But we were excited, so we took on the challenge. It was about a weekend when everything was gutted, and I was in the upstairs uh, bedrooms, and I was in the process of removing, removing wallpaper. If you've ever done it, you know where the story is going. Uh, but that wallpaper, as we got closer look at it and we peeled it off, there was a cake of matted glue uh, that was right underneath the wallpaper. We couldn't have seen it as we did the walkthrough, but it was there. And as we ripped it off and we're trying to scrape it off, nothing was working. But what we did is use a, a wallpaper steamer, which is about this big, and you steamed it up until it softened. We took a rag and wiped it down. So every square inch of wall in this house uh, had wallpaper on it. So every square inch we would steam, then take the rag and wipe it down, and then soak it in some hot water so we could reuse it again. Every square, square inch of the three bedrooms on our second floor. I love our house and we're sad to leave, but there was a moment in that week where I did cry a little bit uh, and had some remorse of buying the house as I got closer to the work we were doing. 
But when we think about our spiritual renewal, it's nothing like that. There is no buyer's remorse. God actually says this, draw closer to me. Draw close as you can see. Draw closer and see me from all angles and perspectives. So close that you can actually become my very image. You'll never regret getting closer to the Lord. He's not going to do a switch on you. The closer you get, the more intimate you get with God. Most religions in the world have clear lines on the perspective of God and their aspect to God's transcendence and God's imminence. Those are fancy words meaning God out there and God down here. Some religions say that, you know, God is nothing like us. He's so far above and beyond us. And the idea that God would somehow be here with us would seem asinine or even sacrilegious. Other religions say, you know, there is no such thing as God out there. He's in all of us. He's in everything. He's in you and I. And the idea of God being out there and beyond us seems archaic and even whimsical. But Christianity says this, the God who created all things, the God who sustains all things, the God who is above all things, transcendent even beyond our own humanity, is the same God who draws near and close to us. It says, come, take a look at me, who's imminent with us. The world says, be the best version of yourself. Be the best you you can be. But the renewing God says, that's never going to be enough. You'll always fall short. You'll never measure up. But if you draw near to God, you can be renewed in the image of him. God says, reach for me and I'll help you. I'll come down low and help you get there. And we see this most clearly in Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth were given to him, yet he humbly came down. He humbly came down to rescue us both in his transcendence and imminence. Fully God, fully human in one person, God himself, the very perfect image of God. And Paul says, continually be renewed in his image as you learn about him, as you grow in knowledge of this Savior, as you draw closer and closer to him. Be renewed in the image of God. Not like anything else you see in the world, but God of all heaven and earth. And when people gather under that process of renewal, where they're continually dying to themselves, this old man, this old self, and being renewed in Jesus, he builds this community, this thing called a church, this thing where you and I are a part of. And he gives us a bold new declaration. Let's look at verse 11. As Paul's walking through the church and uh, the Colossian church, he says this, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Praise be to God. Those are revolutionary words at the time that we were all in God. See, God wants us to put to death the sinful nature of the old man, the old self in us. But he doesn't want to vanquish our stories either. We're not absorbed in some kind of collective void of any unique identities. It's easy to see in this passage, meaning that the, none of that matters, and that to dismiss all our cultural stories and unique ethnic identities. Uh, actually, in Cher Sin's book, um, in Beyond Colorblind, she advocates moving away from that, saying, well, people that say we don't see color, 
almost dismissing people's stories when referencing uh, to people's identities, but to rather see it as God's redeeming all our ethnic journeys toward God's greater glory. And that's what Paul is trying to say in this passage. He's trying to share what a new community looks like as he's gathering from all different tribes and all different people and all different walks of life. Paul is trying to say that not dismissing the uniqueness of the people, but rather reclaiming the divisions in these communities under the banner of Jesus. He's not dismissing people's stories. He knows your stories. He knows your walk. He knows where you come from. And he knows the struggles you face. And he's not saying none of that matters. He's saying, let's redeem it for a greater story under the banner of Jesus. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language from all walks of life. Yes, the world will fight. Yes, the world will argue. Yes, the world will try to manipulate and the world will try to divide. But the church, you and I, will declare with one voice together, that the differences among us actually add to the greater story that God is trying to tell. The differences between us, that when we don't look the same, when our stories don't align the right way, that actually adds to the greater story that God is trying to tell in a world. The church will declare that we won't stand for fighting. We won't stand for arguing. We won't stand for manipulating. We won't be divided on who comes and who doesn't belong, but rather we will come together as one voice, as to the glory of God. And at this point, we have to ask ourselves, church, in this world, in this climate, in this season, how are we doing with this? Is this the declaration that we're proclaiming, the bride of Christ here, the hope of the world? How are we doing with this? I would say if we got real honest, that most of the time, we find ourselves fighting within divided even within arguing over preferences within the church on even how we should worship rather than tackling the divisions in our world that the gospel can really truly bring. The divisions that keep people away from the church. Instead of tackling those, we fight within. Last week, we talked about how we can be blinded in our own hearts, but we also need to address the blind spots in the community the blind spots in our church as well. See, our declarations as a church are muffled sometimes by our own ideologies, politics, and preferences. We learn that church is more than a building, more than an institution. It's everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And what are you declaring? So the church, what are you declaring to your neighbors, to your community and the world? What is this bold declaration of hope do you give? Because everyone is listening and waiting. That there's only one solution to solve all the world problems, and not in a simplistic way, but in a catalytic way. And it's the gospel and the grace of our Lord Jesus. What is the declaration do we give? What is the banner that we lift higher than any other banner in our homes, on our streets, in our cities? See, our strong declarations can have strong implications. I believe that. If we could stand up and rise and speak of the gospel and the grace of Jesus above all other things, there can be strong implications because we've seen it in negative ways as well. That when we declare things that aren't aligned with the gospel, there's also negative implications. In 1860, just 23 days after the election of our 16th president, 
Reverend Benjamin Morgan Palmer, uh, a pastor in a Presbyterian church in New Orleans, Louisiana, stood up on Thanksgiving Day and gave a sermon. And in that powerful sermon, his final lines read this. In determining our duty in this emergency, it is to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery as now existing. I don't know Pastor uh, Palmer, but he stood up and he preached those words. And those words rang true among the church, the people uh, that were sitting in those pews. More powerful than that, those lines became a rallying cry. And he began to travel throughout the South and through areas that would receive him. And those words were printed and shared about, and they became a rallying cry for the states that would eventually become the Confederacy. And he elevated the idea of slavery as a duty to God. And he would say, we defend the cause of God and religion. We defend the cause of God and religion, and the people responded. What we declare as a church, not just the institution, you and I, what we declare as a church can have implications that ripple throughout the world. It can be for division and disunity, or it can be for justice and goodness. It can be for division or disunity, or it can be for justice and goodness. What are you declaring, church, to your neighbors, to your communities? What are we lifting up? What is the banner we want to fly higher than anything else? See, we can write the narrative of the church in our midst, not clinging to what the church was and all its brokenness and ruggedness and all the ways it failed, but we cling to what the church can be. We cling to the promises of the church shown in Revelation 7-9 and say, how can we live that now today? How can we make the church of the future the church now through, your, through, through us? And that's what God is calling us to. And I want to end our time just with three challenges for us as we leave. Two are personal. One is a little more community-focused. Three challenges. First is this. I encourage you this week to pray for God to expose the ways, uh, expose the things in your life that God is calling you to, uh, to bring to death. What are the things in your life God is saying, those things need to die in your life? Maybe you've tried. Maybe you've tried a hundred times. Maybe you're ashamed to even try again. But God is calling you to try to once again to bring it to death. Ask God to expose those things in you. And conversely on that part two is realize that God's infinite grace is poured upon you. That it's not about you trying again but it's God's grace drawing you toward the new life he has for you. So one, pray for God to expose ways or things that you want to bring to death. And two is just rely, rest in the grace that it is through his son Jesus that all things are made possible. And the third one is a little bit more practical. I want to encourage you to look at Colossians 3.11. Paul wrote it for the Colossian church for his context that made sense to them. And I'm not saying uh, write more scripture, but I'm saying rewrite 311 for your own context as a declaration of what you're willing to fight for as the church. What are the things you're gonna say, this is what it means to be part of the church. 
and you should write it in your own words. Take time this week and declare it and live it and fight for it because everything's going to want to draw you away from it. Some ideas you could say is here there is no young or old. There is no Democrat or Republican, no traditional or contemporary, no nationalities or ethnic pride, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen. God, thank you for you and the goodness that you are. And God, you are a God of justice and goodness, love and wisdom and power and might. And Lord, that God, you are a God who wants to draw near to us and be with us. And Lord, in our weaknesses where we stumble and fall, may you help us up. And Father, walk with us to live a bolder life, a braver life that lives into the kingdom of God. And let it break through now, especially now, uh, Lord, in this time where it feels like the enemy is winning. Lord, make your church that much stronger and brighter, not through one fail uh, sweep, but by your people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.